Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The Replacements. The Replacements Part 2. The Replacements Part 2, yes. Yes, okay. So The Replacements, you know when you're at a like a, at a club, it's really loud, you're kind of drunk, mm-hmm. and then someone comes over and is like, who's that? Who, who's that playing over there? You go, The Replacements! <laughs> and you're like, but no, you're actually really drunk. You're like, Placemats! Uh, Placemats! The Replacements! Placemats! Placemats! Oh, where's the, oh, the Placemats! Oh, are you going to go see the mats tonight? <laughs> Whoa! Wow, the mats—they're great. And so there you go. That's a little bit of lore. Mm-hmm. Is uh, and there's a couple other made-up stories on how the replacements became the mats. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I, I feel like usually I, I don't remember who said this. It was probably someone smart like uh, Leonard Nimoy, <laughs> and he said, uh, you know, the most likely answer. Is the uh, the real truth mm. razor? <laughs> Ocam's <laughs> razor. <laughs> Perfect. When you hear us refer to the mats, we're talking about the replacements. Welcome to No Dogs in Space, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Marcus Barks. I'm Carolina Hidalgo. And we are here, as we said, at the replacements part two. Yes. So when we last left the replacements, lead singer Paul Westerberg had just left the band's second demo tape at a Minneapolis record store called Orfolk. The intended recipient for this demo was record store manager and local tastemaker Peter Jesperson, whom Paul was hoping might book the replacements at a hip new venue in town called Jay's Longhorn. Now, Peter was inundated with demo tapes from Minneapolis bands, more than he knew what to do with. But when he first heard the Replacements demo, he recognized that there was nothing like it in Minneapolis or anywhere else in America at the time. See, despite the reputation for being losers or underachievers or fucking whatever, the Replacements could fucking play. Yes. It wasn't like the old school punk bands where like the dudes like barely knew their shit going in and just figure it out on the way. Which is fine too. Which is also great. That's also fine. (laughs) We got the fucking misfits from that. Yes. Instead, the replacements came to the table with a raw talent that could not be faked. 
At the age of 13, Tommy Stinson could play bass as well as anyone who'd been handling the instrument for a decade. Paul Westerberg's singing and lyrics were deliberate and deep. Bob Stinson's solos, especially in the first few albums, are the stuff of rock and roll legend. And Chris Mars held down driving beats that existed just ahead of the rest of the band, giving even the slower songs a sense of urgency. And Peter Jesperson heard all this from just the demo and became quite literally the first ever fan of The Replacements. As a result, Peter called Paul Westerberg the day after listening and asked them if they wanted to record a single or a full album for his label, Twin Tone Records. Whoa. And Paul Westerberg is on the other end of the line being like, first of all, you own a record label. <laughs> I mean, I mean, of course you do. Of, of course you do. One single, please. <laughs> album, al- album, album. Like, it's like, you're not talking into the clown's mouth, man. <laughs> yes. So that was something that was kind of surprising that, you know, the guys in the replacements did not know. Although they just, Peter Jesperson just had a huge, like, you know, article come out about him, like, not that long ago. So. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, the replacements are reading the fucking newspaper every day. Cover to cover. I hope. <laughs> I hope that they're just like. Do you want the Sunday Times? It's my turn to have the Sunday Times. Yes, let us peruse the metro section to see what the latest goings on in the Twin Cities are. Yes. <laughs> well, they did read religiously, at least as far as like what David Bowie was doing. Yeah. So I guess they were doing something. But yeah, they didn't know that Peter Jesperson was, uh, he was a man of many hats. Mm-hmm. I mean, he wore many hats. Yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> one of his hats, as you said, manager at Orfolk Record Store and then DJing at uh, Jay's Longhorn Music Venue. And then and uh, also one of the co-founders of Twin Tone Records, a local independent label who had been around for just only two years at this point. Mm-hmm. So Twin Tone started with a college student named Paul Stark. He had his own record studio he put together on the first floor of his house where he recorded people's bands and projects and stuff. Like people he knew from the area or, or from school usually. Like Yanni, <laughs> for example. A what? recent Greek native transplant studying psychology at the University of Minnesota. <laughs> They were in the same class. That's amazing. Yes, he did start in a rock band. Yeah. Or rock band. I mean, as rocking as Yanni's going to get. It, it's pretty rocking. <laughs> I mean, he, he's got the hair and the spandex and everything. Good yeah. for him. Yeah. you know. And then he found his own his own way. He found he his went own, solo. own little corner of the universe that only <laughs> Yanni lives in. Good for Yanni. <laughs> so, yes, Paul Stark is like, all right, sir, Yanni, go ahead. And he was also buddies with Chris Osgood, who we talked about in part one, the lead singer and guitarist for the Suicide Commandos. Mm-hmm. And together they recorded some of uh, the Suicide Commandos early stuff. And around that time, Paul Stark and Chris Osgood got to talking about how the city needs an independent record label to champion these, you know, the best local bands in the area. Yeah. And this is in 1977, the same year all the music writers and bands that had that meeting about establishing like a venue, which led to Jay's Longhorns, we talked about in part one. Mm. This is all happening around the same time. Yeah, it's super cool. Yes. And so they thought like, that's how we get bands to flourish, right? We have a venue for them to play in front of audiences. Then we start a record label. We record them and distribute them all over, including Orfolk Records. It all comes together. Yes, these guys are allowing a new industry into their town, and they are, what, like 23, Mm. 24 years old? And they're in charge of it all. It's brilliant. Yeah. So Chris Osgood and Paul Stark, they decided, okay, let's get into the record label business with our buddy Charlie Hallman, who will later, he's more of a silent partner, but hey, he's a good guy, and we need capital for that. But right when they wanted to get it off the ground, Chris Osgood's band, the Suicide Commandos, were offered a record deal with Blank Records. Who else was on 
Blank Records. I was Pure Ubu. Yeah. I remember that because it was uh, Mercury Records. Uh, you know, they, they started Blank Records, uh, like the indie kind of their indie version or something. What, wasn't that the record label that was like supposed to put out either the Misfits or the Cramps and then they fucked them over? Yes, it was the Misfits. The Misfits, yes. Yes. No, it, they didn't really fuck them over, actually. <laughs> <laughs> the Misfits, Glenn Danzig, he started his own, like, you know, he did his own DIYs. And, and, yeah, uh, Plan 9. Yes, exactly. But first he called it Blank Records. Oh, he named it that. That's what it was. And then he got the, you know, he got the rights to that name. <laughs> and then when he, you know, released his single or whatever, and then he found out there's another blank records from Mercury. Mm-hmm. He went, he called them. Remember, he called them. It's like, <laughs> my lawyer's on standby, which is like his neighbor. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and like, you know, said, hey, if we'll sue you guys if you don't let us use, the, you know, your recording studio. Yeah. Uh, for some reason, I have this very distinct memory of you telling me this story in the grocery store, like in the early days of quarantine, where we're like fucking trying to find potatoes and shit. And you're like, yeah, because you're like, turn on. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. But anyway, Twin Tone. Well, it was important for me to. I don't know why I brought that up. <laughs> I don't know why the potatoes remind me of that. But anyway, so yes, uh, Chris Osgood, Suicide Commandos. They, they're offered a record deal, and they're like, "Yeah, okay, great," but I don't have time to start this new record label now. I can't do both. So Chris Osgood suggested his good friend Peter Jasperson ah. to take his spot because they and they also needed someone with good taste in music, and you know. Charlie Holman, he's a nice dude, but he's only listening to the Beach Boys. Yeah. <laughs> and Paul Stark, let's just say like he has his own thing going on. We'll get yeah. more into Paul Stark yes. later and, and why he is definitely not the man who should be running the music label or why he's not the tastemaker. The, the tastemaker, yeah, yes. Yeah, because every label needs tastemakers, but, always. You need one guy that knows what the fuck he's talking about. And that was Peter Jesperson, the A&R guy. So... Paul Stark, Charlie, and Peter Jesperson, they opened their first office in 1978 in Paul Stark's basement where they recorded Curtis A's band. And they also recorded and released EPs from the suburbs and fingerprints, and it sold well. Twin City bands were clamoring to get on this new label yeah. because they were finding the best bands in town, like like this one, like the suburbs. Oh, my God. Oh, I love this song, Chemistry Set. It's so good. really fine. Yeah, it's like 77, 78. Or I think it's 78. Um, but yeah. it's yeah, fucking wonderful. Yeah, it's like the, right in the beginning of, uh, of the record label. Yeah, one of the many bands to like see the Ramones come through and go, that! That! That's what I want! <laughs> I want to do that! I want to do that! And they bring all this weirdness into it and, you know, and that's the way it fucking goes. Now, even though Peter Jesperson was fully on board with recording the replacements from just hearing the demo, he still had yet to see them actually play a live show. In fact, Almost nobody had seen the replacements live because they'd only played a gig and a half before giving their demo to Peter. So the replacements lined up a show through a band called The Dads at a place mm. called Bataclan, a show that was, again, 
doomed to fail. Oh, that's a bad choice of words. <laughs> so Why did you say that? What, doomed to fail? The Bataclan. <laughs> what about the Bataclan? Oh, the... That, that was the French venue where the thing happened. Yeah, I know, but there's... I don't know. I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm not referencing that. Oh, we're referencing the other doomed to fail show <laughs> at the church basement coffee shop in Minneapolis. Yeah, let's focus on that one. Okay. <laughs> now, this disaster happened in 1980. See, just a few days before the show, Tommy and Bob Stinson were getting high and climbing in trees, which is a wonderful activity if you've never done it. But Sure. So- <laughs> but suddenly, a branch snapped, Tommy fell, and his armpit got impaled on a picket fence post. <laughs> There's also risks with getting high and climbing trees. Maybe you shouldn't do both. <laughs> Maybe you should do one and then the other. Nah, don't, don't let me tell you what to do. Nah, don't do both. Make your, make your own decisions. Wear a helmet. <laughs> the band, perhaps erroneously, decided that the show must go on as a three-piece, although this decision was merely a parallel disaster to what was coming. See, since Peter Jesperson... What? Fr- What's coming? <laughs> <laughs> what horrible event are you going to conjure up now? My God, it's not that serious. Okay. See, since Peter Jesperson from the almighty Twin Tone was coming to see the replacements play, they were nervous. So they had a little drink to calm their nerves. Problem was, Bataclan was another sober house, like so many Twin Cities venues at the time. So, while drummer Chris Mars was upstairs sneaking swigs out of the bottle he'd stashed in his drum bag, Paul and Bob were downstairs by their recollection, probably and possibly doing speed. <laughs> I remember probably doing speed in 1980, yes. Yeah, there's nothing, there's nothing to calm your nerves like speed. But even though Chris was doing the less illegal action, he was taking swigs on stage while setting up his drums. So he was quickly caught, thrown out, and banned, ruining the replacement's chance to play that night. And it was at that point that Peter Jesperson ambled up, excited to see the show. Oh my God, I'm going to get to see the replacements tonight. But after Chris told him what happened, and Chris was super nervous because he thought that they had completely blown their shot, Peter just thought it was funny because it was. So instead of writing them off, Peter set them up for a coveted spot at Jay's Longhorn. Yeah, Peter was going to stick with replacements even though they messed up on their first gig. He was supposed to see them in. Yeah. And, and boy, was that a sign of things to come. <laughs> it truly like, was. But the thing is that Peter, he's he's a massive Beatles fan, yeah. right? And he's said this like a million times. I love the Beatles. Obviously, I love other stuff too. So when he saw these guys and he started to get to know them a little bit and, and seeing how kind of loose and a little unprofessional they were <laughs> and everything, he noticed like, oh, look at this. There's the wise ass, the cute one, the wild card, the quiet <laughs> contemplative artist. Like like he saw something in them already immediately. And, yeah. and it's not just like he was seeing them in a totally commercial, like let's exploit these personalities kind of way. No, like he's like the older brother, like the cool uncle who he, he probably, He's practically like brimming with pride yeah. over these boys. He's he's the one clapping the loudest yeah. in the back of the room. <laughs> he always like, says, Look at my boys. That's what they always said is that even in the worst gigs, when Peter Jesperson was there, they could always hear one guy in the back going, Woo! Yeah! 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 
while everyone else is like, yeah, I guess that was fine. I, I don't know what we're doing here. <laughs> but it was really cool. Like, he was very much like, if you're serious about this and you want to do this, I'm going to show you everything I know and get whatever resources I have and, and put out something phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Now, since the replacements were making their scene debut in the hippest club in town, Peter Jesperson raised the hype to insane levels. The employees at Orfolk had gone from playing the demo in the office to playing it in the store. And by the time it came to see the replacements at the Longhorn, Peter's enthusiasm had rubbed off on everyone. He's handing out t-shirts <laughs> at this point. There was, however, the fact that this was a bar and Tommy Stinson was barely a teenager. And as the band was setting up, the manager of Jay's Longhorn dragged aside an employee and says, that kid's fucking 12 years old. Make sure he doesn't drink. Hey, he's 13 and a half now. (laughs) But once they were ready to go, the replacements made a stunning debut, opening their 18-song, 35-minute long set on July 2nd, 1980, with a song that surpassed Peter Jesperson's hype. That song was the Johnny Thunders-esque Careless, featuring what I call the Minneapolis Step Down as the pre-chorus. It's just a minute and eight, so we can play the whole fucking thing. God, I love that fucking song. I can't believe they came together so fast. <laughs> they really did. Like that's. I mean, how far are they into the band at this point? Like six months. Uh, well, no, actually, they've been around for over a year at this point. Over I mean, a year? well, since they began like messing around, yeah. you know, little dog breath stuff and <laughs> and all that stuff. Like they. I mean, I guess since they started playing together, but I guess you know, doing shows as the replacements, that is fairly new. Yeah, and the Minneapolis step down, like, it's something that I've heard in just so many Twin Cities bands, that da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-
because they had seen a fair amount of janitorial work. I know. It's like, oh, man, it looks so real. <laughs> it's like, no, lady, it's all real. And that that is the beauty of this. Yeah. What was more, you had a 13-year-old kid who could not only run bass lines up and down the neck, but he'd just walk up to the mic during moments of silence and yell like, fuck you. Kiss my ass. Hey, eat my shit. Just because he could. Because he's 13 years old. Exactly. And don't forget that long belch (laughs) that they all used to do. So after seeing them a couple times, Peter Jesperson's desire to sign the replacements to Twin Tone evolved from a want to a need. But there were still two other guys to convince. Peter's partners, Charlie Hallman, and more specifically, Paul Stark. That's right. Because remember, Charlie was easy. He trusted... Peter's judgment. He's like, you you are an A&R guy. That's your job uh, to find talent. Totally fine. But Paul Stark was not so easy because he cared more about logistics, Mm -hmm. of course. Uh, I mean, it's also because he knew that he had to be the push to the pull. Yeah. Uh, So, like, they didn't they call him, like, Mr. Spock? They said that he was the Mr. Spock of Twin Tone. Yeah, his demeanor was quite Spock like. Yes, because it's all about logistics. It's all about logic. If if, if it makes sense, then we're going to go with this. Like, and which. Actually, to me, makes a lot of sense, <laughs> by the way, if you want to run a business. You are the Spock-like one on this show, yeah. I, I like to be legit. Okay. <laughs> my thing is different. Yeah, and, I am, and I'm and i more like Peter Jesperson, which is like, oh my fucking God, you got to hear this. Like they, That's what they said about Peter Jesperson, is that he had a million favorite songs. And I'm that same way. And oh, yeah. yeah. And, and Paul Stark, on the other hand, is like, this might be your flavor of the week. <laughs> like, we're going to put in lots of money in this. That yeah. we barely have, so we got to make sure this is right. Like, do they have enough songs for a whole album? Like, are the replacements like are they stable? Like, they seem pretty new. Their bassist is 13 years old. <laughs> How are they going to tour this way? You know, this is an investment after all, right? So Peter, as you said, he's a dreamer, and Paul is like, I'm going to rein this in for a minute. And how about we have them come in for like a little bit of a studio recording audition, and then maybe we'll record a single with them, and and you know, that, we'll, we'll we'll throw them a bone. Sure, no problem. So the guys in the band, they come into this small but mighty Blackberry Way studio, mm-hmm. and they quickly knock out 12 songs in less than half an hour. Yeah. Like, boom, it's done. Look how easy we make it. <laughs> so Paul Stark had to eat his words. He swiveled his chair to Peter, and he said, yeah, we got an album. We're going to do an album. Yep, and one of the songs that they played that later ended up on that album was Shiftless When Idle. I like this one.
I mean, really part of the genius of Paul Stark and the reason why Paul Stark and Peter Jesperson work together so well is because Peter Jesperson brought them in. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know they're rough, but, you know, we'll get them rehearsed. We'll, we'll tighten them up a lot. And Paul Stark, like, even though he was a little apprehensive, was like, no, keep them messy. Like, mm-hmm. abs- like, keep them messy, keep them disorganized. That's the magic of this band, because if you make them tight, they're going to sound like everybody else, and you're not going to have the magic that you love about them. It's only logical. Yeah. <laughs> no, what's crazy about the replacements is that even though they were signing with a local indie, they still got a record deal after maybe five shows, and yeah. probably less than that, all because Peter Jesperson saw something special right off the bat. But seeing as how Peter was sort of the bell of the ball when it came to local tastemakers and seeing how damn near every band in the scene was jockeying for a space on Twin Tone, other bands in Minneapolis felt a bit miffed when this band who seemed to come out of nowhere got signed. Oh, come on. <laughs> that happens all the time. The suburbs, when they got signed, everyone was miffed about them, too. Yeah, of course. No, no, there's always a fair amount of jealousy in a local scene, especially a local scene that knows it's good, like the Twin City scene knew it was. But as Paul Westerberg thought of it, just because the replacements hadn't been playing at the Blitz with the Suicide Commando since 1977, that didn't mean that the band hadn't paid their dues. Furthermore, the replacements, despite their appearance as a bunch of drunken schlubs, they'd actually cultivated their image as losers. <laughs> yes, we're purposely doing this. <laughs> I mean, oh, kind of, kind of. Kind of. I mean, Paul Stark saw it when he when he first when the, he first saw the replacements, like he first saw like, no, they're doing this on purpose. Like they're very talented. They're very smart. Paul said that at first they actually played a little too well. But after he saw that from disorder came genius. They followed that particular track with everything it entailed. There were, however, those in the Twin Cities scene who gave Peter Jesperson just the tiniest bit of shit for signing the replacement so soon. And one of those was a man whose band had just gotten passed over by Twin Tone. The man was Bob Mould. And the band was Husker Du. Yes. Real fast. Hardcore that you can whistle a tune to. <laughs> so they say. So, so they, they say. say. So Husker Du and the replacements, they're mentioned together a lot in, in books and articles and stuff. And like here, right now, podcast. <laughs> and that's because they came up around the same time in the same area and broke out in the mainstream at one point. Very close together. Yep. And they're both, both bands are very smart. 
both bands, like they are full of clever kids. Uh, but what made Husker Du different from the Mets were the fact that they were very resourceful on their own. <laughs> you see, they're very DIY. They never needed an adult in a room, you know, <laughs> like the replacements did yeah. to like be like, oh, the exit's that way. You're walking to a closet, you know, that kind of business. <laughs> Bob Mould, uh, you know, who would be the guitarist for Husker Du, he moved from upstate New York to Minnesota for college. And he quickly met two record store employees and music obsessed stoners, mm-hmm. Grant Hart on drums and Greg Norton on bass. Yes. And that record store employee begat another record store employee, which begat another record store employee. And before you know it, I can't fucking go into a record store without some asshole telling me I need to listen to Zen Arcade. There you go. <laughs> and that's that is the Bible. Um, so, as I said, like those three guys in Husker Du, very hardworking, very resourceful, very intelligent. Like their first real gig at Jay's Longhorn that they managed to book just by showing up at the Longhorn on like an audition, like lunch hour mm-hmm. thing. And they just showed up, they set up and they just started playing yep. completely unannounced. Yep. Half of the fucking battle is showing up. It really is. <laughs> to which the manager is like, please leave. You know, you know he, he actually ran out from the kitchen. He said, who the hell are you guys? What are you doing? And the guy said, hi, we're Husker Du and we're interested in playing in your little club. Mm-hmm. You know, take a card kind yeah. of thing yeah. and and somehow they got the manager to agree to book them on a show like he, he pulled out a calendar and everything he's like okay uh, you're opening on Sunday here you go I'm penciling you in mm-hmm. fine I'll get a pen <laughs> Jesus alright there May 19th on a Sunday night there you go you, you're on the bill now and yeah. Husker Du said great thank you and then they went back to playing because yeah. <laughs> why not why interrupt them in the middle of their set god yeah. damn you oh yeah and Husker Du they kept getting booked all over town and rehearsing every night until mid night 1 a.m. later like they they worked really hard writing tons of new material at first a lot of it was garbage but that's okay this is what you do to get better of course and they did and they promoted their stuff too like with flyers and everything so they were always on top of this like if they had a show uh, they they were getting booked at the Longhorn a lot for like a period of time there so they decided okay we'll just make a flyer says tonight at the Longhorn Husker do and so whenever they had a show that day they would just grab their flyers and like, this is tonight, <laughs> guys, this is tonight. They need to make another flyer. Uh, that's clever. It's literally tonight. Yeah. So that was great. They they played all over town as well. 7th Street Entry, Duffy's. Actually, it was at Duffy's that they were supposed to open for Joy Division on May 29th, 1980. But as we know, yeah. Ian Curtis died. He he killed himself the night before uh, Joy Division's uh, American tour. Yeah. So that would have been a nuts, like that would have been like a in-betweeners meet South Park. <laughs> like, like them in the dressing room backstage. <laughs> I can only imagine like Grant Hart just rolling his eyes or something and Stephen Morris trying to make him wear a weird shirt. Uh, it's like, no, we do this all the time. Believe me. And, and then we'll, we'll all shit in a tub. It'll be funny. It'll be really funny. Um, so anyway, you should listen to our Joy Division series. You really should. Please they're do. a lot more fun. Of a, they're a lot more fun people than you think they are. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra. 
Just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Okay, so Husker Du, their next step was to record a demo and send it to Twintone to get a record deal. Great idea. But Peter Jesperson rejected it. He said, I'm sorry, it's it's pretty good. You know, it's awfully fast, though. Yeah. It's really fast. Like, are you guys at a race or something? This is <laughs> like, do you have slower songs? And yeah. Bob Mole's like, those were our slower songs, <laughs> actually. They were. They're slowest songs. Yeah. They're about to get the land speed record. Well, they're, yeah. Oh, nice pun. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Well, not necessarily pun, but nice reference. Uh, well, the thing is about Husker Du is, like, from my understanding, like, they were another band who were inspired by the Ramones. Like, when the Ramones came through, they're like, fuck yeah, that's what I want. But the thing is about the Ramones, if you listen to Ramones live recordings versus Ramones albums, the live recordings are so much faster than the actual album recording. So much faster. And from what it seems like, like Husker Du paid more attention to how fast the Ramones played live You're right. than to how fast the Ramones played on the albums. You're absolutely right. They actually took notes. Bob Mould was taking notes about like how their live performance and how, remember how uh, Johnny Ramone just kind of had a strict like at, oh, 900 hours we do this yeah. and all that business. <laughs> uh, listen to our Ramones series. Because yeah. uh, they did have a whole set of like, we go on the lights are on, we play. No tuning, no banter, no nothing. And Husker Du definitely took a note from that. Yeah. Of like, that's what we do. We, we we rail from one song into another into another, and you can't even catch your breath. Yeah. And and they took that, but they were gonna go faster. So much because faster. they're in a race. <laughs> Remember that. So Okay, so they, they gave their demo to Peter Jesperson. Peter Jesperson did not fawn all over them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Huskers, they were a little hurt by the rejection. Of yeah. course, they were, as you said, miffed. Mm-hmm. Uh, a little kicked <laughs> rocks, right? But you know what? So what? You know what we're going to do? We're going to, the, the power trio geniuses that we are, we're going to release the singles ourselves. Yes. And we're going to get some help from Terry Katzman, our, our man about town. We'll talk about him a lot later. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to get his help in, in this. And then we're going to start our own label. And we're going to call it Reflex Records. Reflex because it was a reaction to being passed over by Twin Tone. Interesting. Yeah, no, you they're not. You open a spite store. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Yes. Yeah, yes. I didn't know that it was called Reflex as a fucking as a fuck you to uh, Peter Jesperson. That's that, that that now that's more than myth. That's much more than myth. And we actually we did have a bit of a conversation before this because I had written it's like yeah he was miffed and you're like well I don't know he wasn't that miffed about it. He fucking named his record label as a fuck you to being rejected by. Peter Jesperson. Well, it was less of a fuck, because otherwise it would be called, like, fuck you, Peter Jesperson Records. Uh, They were still still very friendly. They still hung out and everything. Of course. I I think it was just them being like, you think that this is not something that can be released, or, I mean, on your label, well, we can show you, you know. I mean, it seemed like a much nicer way of of throwing bottles through someone's window (laughs) and driving off, which is not what happened. And so the Hooskers, they got a loan from Grant's mom, Grant uh, being the drummer, Mm -hmm. they got a loan from Grant's mom's job at the credit union, and Bob and Grant, they did the artwork, and they printed the whole thing at a local copy shop themselves. They, Mm -hmm. they, They bought 
2,500 clear plastic sleeves, and they stuffed the vinyls themselves by hand, and it all finally came out, all on their own, January 1981, their first single. They did it. They did it themselves. But when lead singer and guitarist Bob Mould heard about the replacements getting signed by Twin Tone, not long after he heard about the replacements (laughs) at all, yes, he was a little miffed. Like, who are these guys? What makes them so special? So, as Bob... Uh, Mold puts it, uh, you know, what makes him so special to roll out the red carpet for Peter Jesperson? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I remember there's another Bob quote because he can't help but say this. Husker Du, we learned every aspect of the business that we could because we felt like we had to, you know, out of necessity. That's punk, right? That's what we did with our lives. The replacements weren't. <laughs> they were far from it. <laughs> Which is true. I mean, the replacements would have to get someone to coordinate to get them to arrive to a place where they could eventually learn the business. <laughs> like, how do they get there? They never learned anything. They couldn't even get a ride to there. <laughs> not, not for a long time. Not yeah. for a long time. But as I said, this is a small scene. Uh, you know, the Twin Cities, it, it's not very big. Even though Husker Du, they're from St. Paul and, and the Replacements, and most of the bands are from Minneapolis, uh, they still all knew each other. And they went to the same parties, and they hung out at you know Peter's apartment, and, and they generally got along. Like, yeah. like, listen, we all have our gripes, but we're all cool. And, and the Replacements liked them back, too. They, they wrote a song as a nod to the Huskers, to, to Husker Du. Like, some people thought it was a dig, but it's not. It's a nod, people. It's a nod. <laughs> and it's called... Something to do. Delivering noise, real tough voice. What else have I got? Half my stuff, stolen guitars. What else is new? It's something to do. It's something to do. Would it not be new? Damn my sweat, girls, you bet. So be twenty two. Half my stuff, make the guitars. Yeah, and that song references the Who's Du song that we played, blah, 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 blah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then at the very end of the song, that <laughs> actually it was something that I can tell they added at the very end. Actually, let's listen to it where uh, Paul Westerberg, they shoehorned in Break the Mold. Oh. Let's hear it. He's good with that. Yeah. Words. <laughs> Break the Mold. I don't know. And, and Bob Mould's trying to heat up his lasagna. I'm like, really? That's cool, I guess. That's cool. Yeah. But while the rivalry between Husker Du and the replacements was a friendly one, they still competed for opening slots when Big Axe came to the Twin Cities. And when Paul's hero, Johnny Thunders, came to town, Husker Du got the gig. Ah, oh, blast. <laughs> but when Black Flag came to town... The replacements got the gig. All right, one, (laughs) one. Now, by this point, 1980, Johnny Thunders was playing with former MC5 member Wayne Kramer in a short-lived band called Gang War. Now, that sounds fucking awesome. Johnny Thunders and Wayne Kramer together, you think, how can that fucking miss? (laughs) I I think it was either last year or the year before a live recording of Gang War was put out like on record store day. And, you know, my local record shop, Record Grouch, uh, Brian that runs the place, he was like, oh, man. 
this is up your alley. You're going to fuck it. Like, this is like, I haven't heard it, but like, you should check this out. I know you love both of these guys. Check it out. It's fucking awful. <laughs> <laughs> it is a, a goddamn mess on wheels because both Wayne Kramer and Johnny Thunders were both so fucked up on drugs. Oh, that's at the time. right. So many different kinds of drugs. They were celebrating their like 15 year anniversary of doing drugs. <laughs> At this point. Case in point, Bob Mould of Husker Du was given the job of babysitting Johnny Thunders on the day of the show. And Thunders spent the whole day whining that Wayne Kramer had stolen his heroin. <laughs> Dope sick, Thunders was eventually given enough cocaine where he could perform. 19-year-old Bob Mould had to, <laughs> was tasked with the job. This man has only lived in a rural, remote town in upstate New York and then... In his dorm room, the only two places he ever lived his entire life, and he has to go find heroin <laughs> for Johnny Thunders. No, I swear, it is for Johnny Thunders. He was, where did he go? Where is he? Now, from how Paul Westerberg later described the show, Johnny Thunders was frightening, beautiful, and mean, like a child, like the walking dead. He said it was pitiful. It was like watching a man in a cage just playing for pay. No passion. So, inspired by this train wreck, Paul reworked the chords to Chinese rocks. Was it written by Johnny Thunders or Didi Ramone? I'm gonna I'm gonna put my money on Didi. Although Didi likes to he likes to spin a yard. <laughs> that man. You should check out his fiction books that are also nonfiction. <laughs> Reworking the chords from Chinese rocks, Paul wrote a song that, more than any other in the Replacements catalog, it provides a roadmap for what the Replacements would eventually become. That song was Johnny's Gonna Die. Paul Westerberg's songwriting, he'd only penned a few songs before he hooked up with the Dog Breath Boys. <laughs> <laughs> but once he started playing with Chris Mars and the Stinson Brothers, something triggered a manic phase of songwriting. Between the start of 1980 and the fall of 1981, Paul is said to have written somewhere around 50 songs. Some so-so, some fucking brilliant. 18 out of those 50 would end up on the replacement's debut, Sorry Ma. Forgot to take out the trash.
<laughs> that I, I like that one. I like that one. There's so many better songs, though. On yeah. the, and we're going to talk about them all. We're going to talk about them all. I, hey, that's just the one that kicks off the whole fucking thing. It really does. And so, okay, so back when they did that audition at the studio and everything, and, and Paul Stark ate his words and all that business, mm-hmm. they, they definitely impressed him, but they were still, remember, they're very green. Yeah. They're, it was their first time in the recording studio. Mm-hmm. And uh, although the music is phenomenal, it's great, but the guy's... When they went in again to, like, this is the album now, Mm -hmm. you're going to do this, uh, they were a little stiff, a little self-conscious. Of course. So uh, Peter, he had to get that magic. You know, he he had to get what what he heard from the demo in their basement or when he saw them play live, the Longhorn, he's like, we need you guys relaxed, like like on your terms. Yeah, well, he needed to, them to get to the point where they didn't give a fuck. Exactly. So Peter and Paul Stark decided, okay, let's bring in our new 24-track mobile recording unit to the Longhorn and have them set up on stage at the venue and record the whole thing. Just pretend you're at a show. And then the guys tried, but they're like, uh, sorry, th- there's no people here. <laughs> It's like, yes, I know. Pretend. Pretend. Work your magic just like you do live. Yeah, no, this is weird. This is not, you know, this is not right. So, yeah. so you know, the, those that recording was not right. It, it did not work. So they went back to the studio, <laughs> back to Blackberry Way. It's like, okay, let's try this again. We'll do whatever you guys normally do. And they all opened a beer. So <laughs> that, that kind of helped a little bit. And, and Paul Stark, he didn't really mesh well with the band creatively. Uh, so he gave the recording engineering job to Steve Felsted, mm-hmm. who, uh, or Felsted. Uh, it's hard to say his name. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's a Nordic name. Yeah, it looks like Fjellstad, um, but it could, it's, I think it's just Felsted. Yeah, so yeah, because st- let's Midwestern it. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, he's from St. Olaf. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mr. Felstad. Yes. Yeah. Uh, he was actually a very nice and accommodating Minnesotan. Yeah. Like he, he, and he was in the Fingerprints, actually, in the band that they released that EP. Uh, those guys from the Fingerprints, they brought a lot of their recording equipment to Paul Stark. It's like, here, like, let's move yours aside. Ours is better. Yeah. You know, they named Blackberry Way after, you know, that song by The Move mm-hmm. uh, that I just heard about <laughs> recently, actually. <laughs> but anyway, so so Steven Felstad, he's like, okay, I'm going to... I'll take care of this. Paul Stark can go home mm-hmm. and watch Star Trek for all, you know, whatever he wants to do. Yeah, because Paul Stark, like, he didn't necessarily have, like, the the chops, the musical chops. Like, I remember there's one story uh, where someone asked, like, yeah, like, give me, like, a Jumpin' Jack Flash sound. And he said... What is a jumping jack flash? <laughs> like, it didn't mesh. No, yeah. no. But Paul, you know, the thing about Paul, and I don't want to get too far into it, he he could tell, like, when the next big thing was going to happen. Yeah. As far as, like, the industry and, and equipment and stuff like that. It, it, it's the heart. The heart he might have been lacking at, at this moment. Yeah, but the logic. Oh, boy. <laughs> no, yes. <laughs> so Steve Feldstead decided, we'll just let them go. You know, we just keep the tape rolling and we let them do their thing. And and you could hear this all in their, you know, their their box set. When you hear all their outtakes and stuff, you can hear Steven going like, uh, guys, we're still rolling. Um, now, now, can, can, you, can you play you can, the so- song now? Fuck the box set. You can hear that in the album multiple times. <laughs> rolling. <laughs> yeah, well, that is true, actually. But you see, that method worked. Just letting them have at it. Making sure you don't miss anything. So you're always recording all the time. And then they did. They recorded at night uh, you know they tried to keep on task uh, but they also couldn't understand why they had to record a song more than once <laughs> like what do you mean we, we 
we already we already did it. We already did the uh, you know that song. We yeah. already did Careless. And how's it going to be better a second time again? And so that's when Stephen Feldstag was like, "Can you just can you just try it?" So the band, you know, they would shrug and they say, "All right," and then they do it again. And Stephen Peter would be like, "Yeah, okay, yeah, it was good the first time." Yeah. <laughs> yes, but nevertheless, they did a few takes on most of the songs and usually trying it out differently, different lyrics or guitar because the, the replacements at this time they didn't see the need to replicate the exact same song. No. And also, like, Paul Westerberg just got bored. Like, you know, yeah. he's like, I, I want to do it a different way. I'm fucking bored of doing it the other way. Let's try it this way. Exactly. Because it had to be. It had to be authentic. So they're all playing together at the same time in the same room. Very few overdubs. And they keep a lot of the mistakes in because that's what makes this album so great. You keep in the mistakes. Yeah. Goddamn right. That's what the, uh, the replacements themselves said. I think it was Bob Stinson that said, like, that's where the magic of rock and roll is. It's in the mistakes. Oh, yes. That was Paul. Oh, that was Paul. All right. Now, concerning those 18 songs, personally, I think that this album would be considered one of the best of the early 80s if there hadn't been 18 goddamn songs on the album. This, I think, is the danger of having a gigantic fan like Peter Jesperson chiming in on the track list. If Jesperson hadn't been so into the band, they probably would have cut some of the fat and ended up with 11 or 12 total fucking classics because there are 11 or 12 absolute classics on yeah. this album. But, I mean, didn't Peter Jesperson, wasn't he trying to, like, beat somebody else? I think it was Wire. Yeah. Yeah, it was Wire, yeah, who would put, like, 21 tracks and on. And they were trying to get 22 tracks, <laughs> which is like, but why? Why? Don't go for the gimmick, man. Go for the quality. <laughs> Throughout, the best songs convey the sense that while the band isn't necessarily tight, they're a unit. It's like a flock of birds all attacking the same target at once. Nowhere is this more prevalent than in the song Kick Your Door Down, led by Chris Mars. Your radio is playing rather loud. It don't sound like me. Your attitude. No, I'm so proud That don't bother me I'm gonna keep on knocking Gonna keep on pounding I'm not gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna knock I'm gonna get, get your door down Gonna get, get your door down Yeah, we'll talk about it more later, but the guitar part on that definitely influenced a man with the initials FB. <laughs> <laughs> and who's FB? Frank Black. Yes. <laughs> the album also showcases little Tommy Stinson's prodigy level bass playing and how he's able to weave it together with his brother Bob's guitar solos and fucking Bob Stinson's guitar solos. One of the reasons why they're so brilliant is that his solos have personality, like mm -hmm. on the smart ass song, I Hate Music. Oh, yes. Now, this this is what I'm talking about. This is the kind of song. I love this song. Mm -hmm. And this is a, a really cool thing about the replacements and how they can sync up so well musically and energetically, attitude-wise, everything. And and you usually never know it's when it's going to happen. No. Yeah. So 
but of course, as I said, they did rehearse a lot, uh, almost every night in Bob and Tommy's basement. And so that song came out of frustration one night in the basement. They were working on something, and then Chris Mars said, like, just, you know, kicks a cymbal and is like, I hate music. I fucking hate music. It's fucking crap, man. And then Paul was like, I hate music, you know, like <laughs> snapping his fingers like, yeah, OK, that's good. And then Tommy starts playing on his bass and Bob grabs his guitar and all together they just crash into this song they made up on the spot. In less than five minutes, they had I Hate Music. Let's hear it. I hate my father. One day I <laughs> yeah, it's a contemptuous solo. Like, it really does feel like Bob Stinson has contempt for music. <laughs> it's fucking brilliant. But concerning the recording of the album itself, it wasn't exactly what you'd call tight. Everything was recorded live, as you said, with the exception of a few vocal overdubs, all in an attempt to capture the energy of the band. And while they certainly succeeded, capturing that energy also meant... As you mentioned, capturing the mistakes because the replacements were never known for their patience in the studio. Yeah. And that never got better. Case in point is Bob's guitar solo in Paul's ode to an unattainable convenience store clerk called Customer that still works despite its off-roading nature. What's on sale? Again, keep in the mistakes. It makes the song better. Yeah. Oh, and one thing. I, I know we've been recording for a while and I forgot <laughs> to mention this. Uh, listen without headphones. Uh, yes. Yes. Listen to replacements without headphones. They are definitely very much a speaker band. Yeah. It really uh, please. is. I mean, it really is like, because I've always like loved the replacements, but it wasn't until like I just sat and listened to them really loudly out of two speakers that were about two feet from my ear that I really, that it clicked in. It's like, oh, that's it. And because they're a speakers band, they're not a headphones band because these aren't headphones guys, you know, my bloody Valentine, they're headphones people. They like <laughs> headphones. They listen to headphones a lot. Not the replacements. Now, Customer is a pretty simple song lyrically. I'm in love with the girl who works at the store where I'm nothing but a customer. I'm a customer. I'm a customer. I'm a customer. That's mostly the, that's most of the song. 
But really, this song captures a fucking timeless situation that's probably been the bane of young men's existence since civilization began. It's the cute shop girl. But it also acts as a time capsule for early 80s teenage lower-class Midwestern life. See, during the recording of their debut, every member of the band lived at home, and none of them had jobs except for Bob Stinson. And Bob Stinson worked as a short-order cook at a restaurant called Mama Rose's in Dinkytown. Yeah, they didn't have money, no. really. And a lot of their early shows, uh, maybe even to their later shows, <laughs> they would ask people to throw them change, yeah. throw money at them, and throw coins or whatever. And yes, even Bob, Bob, the one, the only one with a job, would like run up to like Peter Jesperson at the bar and be like, look, I, a whole 78 cents. Look at this. Look what I made tonight. And Peter Jesperson would be like, congratulations, Bob. But he wasn't saying that facetiously. No. No, he actually meant congratulations, Bob. <laughs> wow. Yes. Like they, they really were struggling they a really lot were. for a long time. No, some people even tell stories about them getting into physical fights on stage when someone threw like a dollar on stage. <laughs> That's a whole dollar. <laughs> but Tommy, meanwhile, he was just starting high school. And owing to his punk rock look, he had to put up with bullies spitting on him in the halls between classes. And he spent a lot of his time dodging what he and his friends called disco rumblers. Dudes who listened to disco and rumbled, beat the shit out of them. And once Tommy came home from school, though, the replacements would gather at the Stenson house to rehearse. Then they'd go out for drinks at a dive bar called CC Club. Oh, and yes. They, That's an institution. Hell yeah, it is. And they started letting Tommy in when he was 15. Why not? Yeah. Making him sit outside every winter in Minnesota was not a good idea. No, it was cruel, too. I mean, hell, this happens all the time. I had a fucking bar in Lubbock called Bash Rip Rocks that started letting me in when I was 18. It just happens. It doesn't happen anymore. But, man, I think I got in right under the wire. That happened to me, too, actually, when I I was 19. They let me in at Desmond's in uh, in uh, on Park Avenue here in Manhattan. Yeah. But if I ever wanted to order more than two drinks, then the bartender would say, well, let me see your ID. <laughs> and I was like, oh, thanks, dude. Oh, I'm good. I'll it's take a water. Real, real Irish native, that guy. He was cool. He was super cool. Well, on off nights, they'd hang out at Peter Jesperson's apartment drinking beer, occasionally watching Werner Herzog movies, but mostly watching taped episodes of All My Children. <laughs> That's the duality of the replacements. Right. But more than anything, they'd listen to records from Jesperson's well-curated record collection. Yes. And this is very important for the development of the replacements. Among selections from record store nerd bands like Big Star, Jesperson introduced Paul in particular to beautiful deep-cut songwriters like Terry Reed, who put out a song called Mayfly in 1969 that sounds like a combination of Benz-era Radiohead, A Ghost Is Born Wilco, and 70s-era Elton John. I didn't have never heard this song before we started doing the series. I'm obsessed with this fucking track. Check it out.
Robert Plant in that last fucking that last flourish, you know, yeah, that just when he, when he goes nuts with it. I mean, with that verse, you can sing both high and dry, uh, or at least that's what you said all throughout that. It's blew my mind when I heard that track. You know, Terry Reid turned down uh, to be uh, Led Zeppelin's lead singer. Are you serious? Yeah, yeah, he did, <laughs> and, and, and Deep Purple too. <laughs> Like everyone wanted him and he was just like the prettiest girl at the party kind of thing. And and he's like, no, man, I'm I'm busy right now, maybe in a few weeks. But, you know, you know what? This guy opened for me. Uh, maybe you should talk to him. His name is uh, Bobby Bobby Plant. Robert Plant. <laughs> and that whole thing is like, I don't want to get in that whole cock rock thing. That's not my thing. I, I, I kind of want to slow it down. And and I haven't heard this song before. Yeah. I actually have never heard this song until right now. And it is it is beautiful. Yeah. It's absolutely gorgeous. Wow. You hear everything in it. It's the, the, it's one of those like skeleton key songs. But speaking of Jesperson's tastes, he convinced the replacements to release a single ahead of their debut record. On one side was I'm in Trouble, which is one of the three totally fine songs written by Paul about his girlfriend at the time. The three of the songs could probably, I don't know, some people love I'm in Trouble. I say, like, ah, get it off of there. <laughs> but the B side to that single held a song that was entirely unexpected. This song was as good of a bar tune as Tom Waits ever wrote in the 70s. And in fact, Paul and Tom Waits got absolutely obliterated together in the late 80s and recorded a terrible version of this song that rightfully stayed unreleased for years. Oh, I heard it. It's fine. <laughs> I, it's they're fine. Just, they're just so both so drunk. And it's fun to hear it just to hear Paul Westerberg tell Tom Waits, come on, fucker. Come on, let's fucking do it. Come on, fucker. Yeah. It's, it's fun. But back in 1981, on The Replacement's first official release, it was just Paul and a guitar playing If Only You Were Lonely. When I walked out of work and I was tired as hell Another day come and gone, oh well Somewhere there's a drink with my name on it I 
I mean, it's also like, it's very, very stonesy, but that was part of the genius of Paul Westerberg because he really took to heart that advice from Richie Blackmore from Deep Purple is that you're either a genius or a clever thief. Uh, and that's what that is. Like that song is like, that is stealing from the Rolling Stones. But then when that chorus comes, like it's 100% Paul Westerberg. Like he just turns it and, and makes the song his own and makes it his own style. And as the replacements go on and on, eventually you get songs that are just like, oh, that's a Paul Westerberg song and nobody else. Yeah, that's true. And and that's it's mostly due to the lyrics. Yeah. I would have to say like Paul Westerberg, he had the gift of gab, I guess <laughs> you could say, and and a, and a girl in every port. And he was always getting in trouble with the ladies and mm-hmm. always, you know, he was a heartbreaker kind of guy. Yeah, he so, was. so he had a lot of songs to write about that. <laughs> <laughs> of course. So, yes, that song wasn't meant to be a replacement song. Actually, uh, remember how we said like Paul is writing dozens of songs every week, every month. They're pouring out of him uh, because he's going through this manic phase. Like he said he had a manic phase for like a year or more. And he just could not stop writing songs. And since he's not working a job anymore and he's living from home, uh, when his parents are out during the day, he'd go down in the basement and write all day and then sometimes record them on, you know, a little recording thing. And then he would show it to Peter, like, because he trusted Peter and his taste, of course, but he didn't want the other guys to know because this is my sweet sentimental side. You know, it's a little slower. It's a little more thoughtful. And so, like, Peter would treat it like top secret stuff like he'd make a tape and put it in a manila envelope (laughs) and walk to Peter's apartment in the middle of the night like 20 blocks knock on the door just slip it through the crack and run away (laughs) that's serious you would actually do that he had to get it to someone before he thought better of it and erased it so okay so back to the album yes they finally finished their debut album they did it yeah, they did it. Fuck it, yeah. It took months of recording at night, you know, random nights uh, when the other bands weren't using the studio. I mean, paying customers <laughs> weren't using the studio. So, uh, so yes, the replacements finally got all the tracks on tape. And Paul and Peter and, and Stephen Felstead, they, they mixed it and they, they finished it together. And once it was all said and done, Felstead said, like, like a doctor delivering a baby, <laughs> wiping the sweat off his brow. <laughs> well, if nothing else, it's louder than the Ramones' first record. <laughs> and that bright and bouncy baby was called, like you said, sorry, Ma, forgot to take out the trash, a name that Paul came up with probably, yeah, probably based on a true story. Yeah. And there's really no story behind that. It's other than like, oh, it's just a clever thing we came up with. Well, there's a there's a bit of a story, like kind of, sort of, where it used to be like when the uh, when the replacements would practice in the basement of the Stinson house, if uh, they the whole thing was that Bob was supposed to take out the trash before they started replacing because they were so fucking loud, the trash can would fall over and it would throw trash all over the fucking kitchen. Uh, so it was supposed to be like, Sorry, Ma, I forgot to take out the trash. Tommy Stinson also in an interview that someone asked him, like, so what does the album title mean? He's like, I don't know, man. We probably just fucking wrote a letter, a note to my mom. Sorry, Ma, I forgot to take out the trash. And figured that's a good album title. That's, yeah, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> There's no poignant time where they were in a desert and yeah. it came to them and, you know, or anything. It was just like, a, yeah, it's just a thing that we came up with. Yeah, the alternate title was Power Trash, uh, which they... No, I thought it was not suitable for airplay. There was, yeah, there was... 
two or was Power Trash the what they were good like that was their new kind of music yeah <laughs> or yeah. something or like <laughs> we're not punk we're not hardcore we're Power Trash fuck yeah yeah because I think they had a sticker on the record that said like file under Power Trash oh yeah, yeah. to the record store employees <laughs> yeah, the record who like employees. roll their eyes yeah. every time they saw that uh, but yes yeah, so and Paul he was also tasked with writing the liner notes for the album and and he like put down like the titles of the song and then the notes next to them like customer yes make up your own words I did <laughs> right and Bob's lead guitar is hotter than a urinary infection I believe that is true I, I've never had a urinary infection but I do believe it is very hot it's hot <laughs> really it's real hot uh, kick your door down first take yeah. first take as we said just one take one and done why did we have to do another one yeah. you know we don't have to do another one uh, written 20 minutes after we recorded it <laughs> no probably true yeah. and shiftless when idle title good song it's kind of so on and so forth you know be, yeah. you know being the midwestern kind of guys that they are it's like oh it's no big deal i just came up with it like right before i came in here but you know it's cool i mean if you want to check it out if you yeah. want to listen to it it's, it's no big deal or anything uh and so the record no big deal record finally came out in september 1981 they got pretty good reviews like Good ones. And, really good ones. And like a national cu- ones too. A couple of them, yes. Uh Robert Criscow from The Village Voice, he gave it a B plus. Oh my God. Yeah. Who's who here has gotten a B plus? <laughs> Anyone? No. Like it, it was great. Like he actually he's he noticed like what they were doing and and he loved it. He said, like, you know, they're noisy, they're disgruntled, they're lovable. Mm-hmm. And and that is the whole point of that. Uh, F- Phil Davis from New York Rocker also gave him, like, a favorable review about their song, saying, like, the endless car rides to nowhere, the stop-and-go snacks, the familiar pressures, drug-induced escapism, you know, they all have psychic consequences. Confronting the internalized damages through ex- simple external summations is the group's forte. Yeah. <laughs> to which the guys are like, what does that even mean? I think oh. it means we're deep but we don't show it. Yeah. Uh, which, yeah, sure. Yeah, the, of course. No, the, it's, they're it's bringing spot on. low art to high art business. Yes, they're doing great. I mean, and also this album, even though a lot of people really liked it uh, and, and it was reviewed in places that they never expected it to be. And it was one of the last things that uh, Lester Bangs, you know, infamously, you know, from Cream Magazine, you know, big uh, proponent of the Stooges. It was one of the last things that he wrote, like, I like this. Yeah. R- Listen, listening to Sorry Ma. Yeah. You know, not bad. <laughs> and, and then unfortunately he, uh, he passed away in 1982. But yeah, I mean, People did stop and notice, even though this is a small independent, like, you know, record coming from an independent label. And so even though it did well, fairly well for what it was, it, I mean, it didn't chart. I yeah. mean, it was in no danger <laughs> of hitting any mainstream charts whatsoever. Yeah. And their local radio stations didn't play their songs because, quote, it was just too hard for us. Uh, but whatever, no matter, like they, they got their album out. Mm hmm. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. 
Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And concerning genre, even though the replacements weren't necessarily what you'd call hardcore in the strictest sense, yeah. they were still one of the bands that got caught up in the hardcore scene in the early 80s because pretty much anything that was hard, fast, and loud got called hardcore. The other band who got caught in this net was Husker Du, who also didn't consider themselves hardcore. And since they were both Minneapolis bands who were friendly with one another, they ended up going on the road here and there to play the Midwest hardcore circuit. Yes, because Bob had notebooks. Yeah. Remember, like, I, we mentioned this, oh, who knows when, but, like, back then with the hardcore scene. Dead Kennedys. Dead Kennedys, right? You get notebooks, and and you and they write down, like, uh, you know, uh, phone numbers, venues, addresses, people to hit up in different cities, places to crash, places places to eat. Uh, it was like a database of, of where and how to book a gig across the country. So you could do a national tour without any help from any major company or, or anybody. Mm-hmm. You could just do it yourselves. They were amassing it themselves and talking with and communicating within each other like Black Flag did it, DOA, Dead Kennedys, Ian MacKay, Minor Threat, the Minutemen. They were all just sharing information, this exchange of information within this community, which usually is a good thing when you do that. Mm-hmm. And they were able to to book shows all the way in Canada, all the way across the country. And and Husker Du is like, yeah, sure, replacements, come with us. Come with us. Do you want to look? No, no. They had no interest in any kind of networking, but they were more than happy to just, like, a gig is a gig, man. They're more than happy to go and just, like, play anywhere they could. Of course. That's what you got to fucking do. Now, the replacements didn't really fit into the hardcore scene because they still looked like a bunch of blue-collar schlubs. They didn't look like punks, and they were seen as posers by some audience members. And conversely, the replacements didn't really get the hardcore scene either because the gatekeeping of having to look a certain way to belong, that seemed highly ironic for a scene that's supposed to be about nonconformity. Oh, yes, I'm mad at my dad who wants to make me go to military school, so I'll dress up like I'm in military school. <laughs> now I'll show him. <laughs> it was a bunch of weird stuff where there. I mean, I th- honestly, I think a big part of it, and this is me just speculating, is the fact that uh, you know maybe when they were like 12, 13 years old, because I know Ian MacKay and Henry Rollins talked about this in in the, the DC area when all these like REO Speedwagon fans yeah. would run around and like beat the shit out of them because they looked different because they had spiky hair or they wore you know you know whatever cut up pants and, and safety pins and stuff that they they decided like I'm going to hit the gym. <laughs> and I'm going to toughen up and I'm going to look bigger than you and your older brother. And I think uh, something happened where it got way aggressive yeah. based on Ario Speedwagon fans. <laughs> but even so, the hardcore scene had an influence on the mats. And during a show in Chicago opening for Husker Du, the replacements debuted a hardcore track as good as any of the era. This song was a response to a U2 song called I Will Follow, released two years before, back when U2 was pretty good. <laughs> yeah, pretty good. Not bad. Oh, yeah, I guess. It's, it's pretty it's a good. Little, it's a little new wavy. I mean, it really depends. What, yeah, you know, what, it's fine. Yeah. I like I Will Follow. I like it okay. But Paul didn't think that the kids in the Midwest were going to blindly go forth in the face of adversity like the youth so revered by Bono. There was no revolution in Minneapolis, no grand battle. Instead, there were endless ride-arounds hanging out in the dangerous parts of town and always the search for more cigarettes. So, in response to Bono's I Will Follow, Paul wrote this song, Kids Don't Follow.
with step downs. No, yes. <laughs> and you know, that's a that's a really good song, but I don't know where Paul got that idea that Bono wrote this about the, how the kids are going to all blindly follow all that business. This song is about a mother's unconditional love for her son. <laughs> Bono wrote that song, uh, you know, I will follow uh, for his mother who <laughs> passed away. <laughs> She died of a brain aneurysm and collapsed at her own father's funeral in front of Bono when he was 14. Fuck you, bro. Fuck you, Bono. I ain't gonna fucking follow your bullshit. At his grandfather's funeral. (laughs) This is why you need a pop-up video in every school classroom. You really do. Yes, in every country in the world. (laughs) And I'm here to put forth... No, okay. Me and Bono and the Edge together, every time we snap our fingers, somebody doesn't know about music trivia. Uh... No, honestly, uh, but you know, whatever. You know, Paul took something that he heard and he and he reacted from it and he wrote a song and that's and that is who Paul is and yeah. that is his songwriting and it's one of the strong things about him. Uh, his his environment really takes hold of what comes out mm-hmm. and and that song is great. Kids don't follow is great. You know, and interesting enough, it's that one song got them another album <laughs> or EP at least. Yeah. Okay, okay. So this is what happened, right? The guys in Husker Du, they were. <laughs> Gracious enough to invite the Mets to Chicago to open for them. I mean, you know, you got to get your own ride at every. Yeah, okay, yeah. van's full, van's yeah. full, but you know, you can come, you can open for us. So Peter borrowed a van from the suburbs and drove the replacements out there to the venue in Chicago to O'Banion's bar. And and the replacements they played their set like really well. They did pretty well. And and Peter who taped their whole set on his boombox played it for them after the show and the guys were like oh well yeah we did pretty well tonight actually mm-hmm. and when the song kids don't follow came on peter pointed out this this is a new song isn't it i haven't heard it before it's perfect and the guys were like yeah we've been messing around in rehearsal and and thought we'd try it out tonight and peter's like this is an anthem it's the best. You you finally did it. You sons of bitches. You finally did it. You wrote the perfect next level song. And and we have to release this. We have to, re- hell, we'll put out a whole new album. We'll, we'll get you some studio time and we're going to have to make another record right away. And and Bob Mould, who's standing in the back, just drops his pie, walks out the door silently. <laughs> <laughs> they got another album over a song at a show we invited them to. <laughs> I do also imagine Bob Mould to constantly be eating pie. Uh, he wasn't there. <laughs> I, I was just painting a picture, but I'm sure once he heard about it, he rolled his eyes and said, "Well, that's not surprising," or some Jello Biafra kind yeah. of thing. Um, so, so the next step for Peter Jesperson was to convince his partners at Twin Tone that we have to release this song. So he calls a meeting, and once again, Paul Stark pushes back on it. You know, he has a list of reasons of why this is not a good idea. Like, sorry, Ma, their debut had just came out like four months earlier, mm-hmm. and and what we're going to release another one. We have other bands on the roster waiting to get their stuff out. We can hardly afford to do all these projects. And and Peter, being their number one supporter, said, listen, we'll make it an EP. Well, you know, that means a lot less songs. Yeah. <laughs> we'll record yeah. it fast. Less than 18. Exactly. <laughs> We're going to do eight songs. Okay, we'll record it really fast. Uh, just give us a weekend in the studio and we'll knock it out. We'll make the artwork real cheap. We'll get Bruce Allen from the suburbs. Hey, Bruce, yes, come here. Make us some rubber stamps. We can put, the, our, you know, the names on it. It wasn't um, even rubber stamps. It was potatoes. It was potato stamps. <laughs> Oh, that's right. It was potato stamps. Yeah. He, he carved out the potato stamps, and then so that way they can stamp it on plain white vinyl jackets, all bare bones, no fancy stuff, no extra expenses. This can all be an early present. Please, Paul Stark, please. <laughs> it's my birthday and my Christmas together. <laughs> so Paul Stark said, 
how could I say no to that face? <laughs> and oh, sure, I'll buy the blank jackets, but you got to stamp them all, all 2,000 copies. And they did. Peter and the band, Bob, Tommy, Chris, and Paul, and anyone who was around, Chris Osgood, Terry Katzman, all of Bob Mould's friends, they all spent a few nights stamping <laughs> all these thousands of vinyl jackets themselves to get this EP, particularly this song out, as cheap and fast as possible. Right. So... After Jesperson convinced his partners at Twin Tone to let the replacements do an EP, the band rejoined Steve Felstad at Blackberry Way, and in just one day of recording, the band captured the entirety of an EP called Stink. It's like once you hear it once, you'll hear it in fucking everything. Now, as we said, the replacements had spent months playing hardcore gigs. And even though they didn't care too much for the scene, their sound was shaped by the audience. But from what Paul Westerberg said, Stink was a misstep for that very reason. Because in trying to stay in sync with bands like Black Flag, the replacements were not being true to themselves, which is something Paul regrets. On the other hand, though, the EP is still fucking great. Since it is mostly hardcore, though, Stink works best listened to in totality instead of just in single songs, which works because the whole thing is over and done with in about 15 minutes. But even though it's mostly hardcore, there are still some absolute standout tracks that have nothing to do with hardcore at all, and at least one ended up as a huge and obvious inspiration for one of the best bands, well, ever. When listening to the song Go off Stink, one can't help but hear it all over what came a few years later from the Pixies, who have always been just as open about their influence from the replacements as Kurt Cobain was about their influence on him. serious realm there's also a hybrid track called white and lazy this song to me like it feels like it just sort of 
drunkenly wanders from one side of the room to the other and goes, fuck you, hey, how you doing? I'm a, hey, you should be pretty cute, but I'm a fucking cute girl <laughs> over here. And then all of a sudden, you get this wild hair up your ass and you just run across, you get into the fucking bath, you run to the bathroom and you look into the mirror and you just start slamming your head into the mirror over and over and over again. Let's check it out. That's got church basement written all over it. (laughs) This Sunday at the Unitarian. Yes. Now, if you've ever listened to Stink, you know that the EP kicks off with a highly amusing recording of Minneapolis police busting an actual replacement show at a rent party in 1982. And while this sounds like a parody of Midwestern police, I assure you it is 100% real. But amidst the bust, you can hear one kid yell an obscenity. Let's listen. Hello. <laughs> this is the Minneapolis police. The party is over. Okay. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Now, now, Carolina, who was that mysterious boy that yelled out, hey, fuck you, man? Dave Perner, the lead singer and guitarist from Loud Fast Rules. Loud Fast Rules. He's 99.9% sure that's him. <laughs> Although this other guy said, my buddy Greg Robinson, it's actually him. So it doesn't matter. I don't know. Let's print the legend. It's Dave Perner from Loud Fast Rules. It is. Let's hear a song from Loud Fast Rules. They, they were very loud and very rocking. Yeah. Yes. So Dave Perner, who was a year behind Tommy at West High School, uh, they, they were in the same school and everything. Mm-hmm. So Dave, he was playing in a band called The Shits. <laughs> an S. 
C-H I T Z. Oh, okay. I knew there was a Z in there. I fucking knew there the was a Z. Shits. In 1980. <laughs> and uh, Dave Perner, he also knew Chris Osgood because everyone knew Chris Osgood. He was everyone's father. Of course. And uh, Chris, he taught him some guitar. He showed him how to play some Ramon songs. And then and then Chris took uh, Dave Perner out to a Husker Du show at Longhorn. And, and then that impressed Dave. And he's like, wow, this is really cool. And it wasn't long until Dave Perner was playing at the Longhorn himself with his new band the next year, Loud Fast Rules. So many children at the Longhorn. Yes. <laughs> there was not, I mean, in the Midwest, especially around there, there it was just like, a, you know, you're close enough. Yeah. Was the drinking age still 18? 18. At that point? I do believe it was until like 82-ish. I th- and then it was something somewhere. I don't remember the history of the legality of it. Somewhere around there. I do have a vague memory of Ben Kissel telling me that they had to change the drinking age in Minnesota because there were so many people, so many kids driving from Wisconsin to Minnesota to get drunk and then dying in drunk driving accidents on the way back. That's right. Because they made that uh, that law like up to the state yeah. or something like we'll give you better highways yeah. if you change the, the whole thing. And yeah. then and Minnesota finally relented after like what, you know, that whole Homer Simpson thing. Like, sure, you know, it'll save a few lives, but millions will be late. Uh, it's like, but millions will be sober. Um, but they finally changed it to 21 yeah. a few years later. But yes, at this point, it's kind of like if you can hit the bar, you're you're old enough to go and then mm-hmm. try not to drink. <laughs> try not to ruin it for everybody. So yes, and the replacements, they became friends with Loud Fast Rules and, and, and they invited them to open up, you know, for, for them at shows, out of town shows, especially in Madison, Wisconsin, which by the way, was everyone's favorite place to play yeah like a really fun college town like the audience is always great the parties are better and and they generally knew how to have a good time madison wisconsin you guys know something that the rest of us don't <laughs> yeah madison is the home of a lot of the onion came from madison wisconsin it was founded in madison wisconsin there you go yeah there you go and so that night in madison wisconsin in 1982 it was no different there was a fucking loud party it was really great and loud fast rules went on first and they gave it everything they had they rocked out so hard and so loud to an energetic and welcoming audience of about 12 to 15 people. <laughs> but they did so well that right after their set, Peter Jesperson walked into the dressing room with a pitcher of beer on each hand and he said, how about a record deal with Twin Tone, boys? Hell yeah. Just like that. Welcome to the family. Yes, and that's when Bob Mould dropped his chocolate croissant on the floor and walked away <laughs> kicking the trash can on his way out. Um, no, he wasn't there. He wasn't there. But, you know, Bob Mould did produce uh, their first two albums for Twin Tone mm-hmm. and by then Reflex Records, you know, because Husker Du's label, they uh, they weren't a spite label anymore. <laughs> they, they were actually going to focus more on championing like local bands now. We're yeah. going to make this a positive instead. <laughs> I mean, besides, by 1984, their offices were literally next door to Twin Tones. <laughs> so they were fine. You know, yeah, they course. shared the same paper. Yeah. So totally cool. Anyway, right when their first album came out, Loud Fast Rules, they changed their name to Soul Asylum. Mm-hmm. Yes, and they did a couple more records on Twin Tone, then got signed to a major label, A&M, in 1988, released a couple more records that were critically acclaimed, but they just didn't make much of an impact at the scene in, in the t- at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, they didn't sell well, and it, well, it looked like their time had come and gone. Solo Silence time had come and gone. <laughs> and so by 1990, they were without a label. They were getting their day jobs back. <laughs> Dave Perner, who had suffered depression his whole life, was going through this really bad spiral. He, he developed uh, tinnitus. His hearing was going. Oh. So he started writing songs with an acoustic 
acoustic guitar this time, and he was working on a melody that he had in his head for years. It's One day he just sat down, he reworked some lyrics and decided, fuck it, I'm going to write what I'm going through. I'm going to make this fucking personal. And that song that was finally released on their seventh album, <laughs> Graves Dancer Union, in 1992 by Columbia Records, that, that Dave Perner wrote during one of the darkest moments of his life, was, oh my God, Runaway Train. <laughs> <laughs> Call you up in the middle of the night Like a fireflower I mean, come on. We're only going to play just a little snippet. I can't listen to that song anymore because when we started working on this fucking episode, we you know, like, okay, we're definitely going to talk about Soul Asylum. So we listened to Runaway Train here in the office, and then it was stuck in my head for two goddamn weeks. Every night when I was trying to go to sleep, it was Runaway Train, never going back. I love it. I'm fucking getting ready for a show in Chicago, and I'm backstage, and it's Runaway Train, never going back. It's, Rob, play it one more time. <laughs> now, I mean it. Come All on, right, I'm fine, also fine, the boss, fine. too. One one more time, one more time. Yeah. It, it, if you listen to that song and you might be a little bit drunk and you're alone, you're going to cry. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, actually, I went. The Runaway Train was actually the first uh, video I ever remember seeing, like on MTV. I saw it like my cousin's house. I went back and watched it again. That fucker is dark. It's really dark because all you remember is the chorus when all the kids, the missing kids pictures come up and all that. But the verses, my God, it's like a fucking little girl getting kidnapped by an old man so he can take her out into the woods to fucking murder her and there's like a baby that gets stolen it's it's intense man so a little context really fast <laughs> is that they decided for their music video to uh, actually kind of take a turn from what the song was really about and actually talk about the you know children being uh, not being kidnapped but but children who have run away yeah and so they would put uh, like almost as a PSA like picture a picture of a of a girl or a boy and be like you know missing since 1987 and you know this is their name where they come from and that kind of stuff like uh like you know missing kids on a on a milk carton kind of thing yeah uh, and uh you know because it got so much airplay and it all over the world because it made it to Mexico yeah believe me uh that a lot of kids were actually found from watching that that's crazy yeah Yes. So, I mean, there was some good stuff and some bad stuff. Some some kids were also like, dude, I wanted to leave. <laughs> but but a lot, like dozens of kids were found. And uh, Soul Asylum actually partnered up with a foundation to like kind of still to this day work on uh, missing kids. It's, it's actually pretty good. Yeah, it's really nice. So fuck yeah, Dave Perner. Good job. Yeah, good job. Now, it's around the time that the Mats were playing these shows with Soul Asylum that a punk band from England, one of the first punk bands in existence, they came to the Midwest to play a show in Madison, Wisconsin. 
where the mats open. We heard that this is the best place to play <laughs> in the Midwest. We've been told far and wide, all the way, all the way in England. <laughs> well, the guitarist of this band, known for his flamboyant style of wearing berets, furry shirts, or not a goddamn thing at all, he was quite impressed with the guitar work of Bob Stinson, but was not in the least bit taken with Bob's fashion sense. Reportedly, the guitarist told Bob to quote, "Lose the fucking flares." And that guitarist was Captain Sensible of the Damned in the year 'Cause that mm-hmm. this was like right before Strawberries came out, right after the black album. Oh man, do you think they played curtain call when the lizard sheds its skin? Yeah, you guys have ten more minutes. <laughs> we can totally do this. We'll play it twice if you Coming want. Up from the deep, the lizard sheds its skin. Listen to that I can't sing like fucking Davanian. At all. Uh, but, but God damn it, I love the damned. I love the damned. And you know what? They're very similar to the replacements in the sense of like, they, they have a cute one, a wise <laughs> ass. They have a, a wild card. It's, it's that whole thing that when you see pictures of them, especially in that era, it does definitely like when they traveled America and them in New York and like them in Times Square or the damned in front of like the Statue of Liberty. It looks like a family like photo album because <laughs> they're all dressed so differently. Yeah. It's like, this is our son and our other son and two other sons here. Yeah, here's our clown son and here's our vampire son. They, they're, they're, they're very different from each other, but they only come together when it comes to drinking and music and that's also the replacements. Goddamn right. Now, the damned were and they are fucking great. We did a whole series on them. So Bob therefore took the captain's advice to heart, as anyone should if Captain Sensible tells you to do something. So after seeing Captain Sensible play naked and pissing in the monitors on stage without fear... I should do that. (laughs) Bob Stinson put his own spin on spectacle. He began playing in a trench coat and nothing else, or he'd wear a dress, or he'd wear a tutu, or, like Captain Sensible, he'd play completely nude. I read a review the other day that someone was like, yeah, the fucking replacement sucked, except for Bob Stinson's huge fucking boner. (laughs) Fully hard on stage. That is a feat. 
Wow, that's the best you came up. That's the <laughs> that's the one positive spin from that whole show. Good for you, Bob. Yeah. In this, the mats gained a further visual element to their live shows because, as Paul Westerberg put it, he wanted people to not only say, "Did you hear the replacements last night?" but "Did you see?" the replacements last night and having a dude who looks like Owen Hart in a tutu will have that effect. Okay. <laughs> All right. I, I Googled who Owen Hart is mm-hmm. today. Was. 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 Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, oh, uh, it I, was I, a whole thing. Now Trust I, me. <laughs> you see, my, this is me getting the news. Um He's a, a Canadian wrestler, right? Yeah. Okay. So, uh. The, one of the greatest heels of all time. A, a big guy. Big guy. Bob Stinson. Barely 190 pounds. But that's the thing. When you look at Bob Stinson later on, he has this presence. Like, especially when you see videos of the replacements doing interviews, like Bob definitely, like there's this one from like 1984, 85 or something like that, where they're getting interviewed by this like chubby guy after a show in New York. And the guy's like, he's okay. He's like a radio guy. He's obviously a radio DJ. And like Bob Stinson walks up and is like, I'm going to fucking pop the pimples on your fucking face. I'm fucking do it. Oh, we'll no. fucking do it. And he goes up and he starts like popping. The guy's like, okay, yeah, you sure do whatever you like, Bob. What? Uh, <laughs> so Bob like starts popping the pimples on his face, but he's just, he has this pro, he has a heel presence and he does in the face kind of look like Owen Hart. Wow. Wow. It's just I'm, a, it's I'm going a, to assault your complexion. <laughs> it's a man with a presence. And that's Bob Stinson. Like Bob Stinson had a presence on stage. He had a presence in life. Uh, and I, uh, strangely enough, when we were working on this, I was having like nightmares about like Bob Stinson coming to get me. That's true. You did have that. And we were afraid for a minute that was a sign. But then we decided it's not. No, it's not. No, no, no. It was just from watching that video. (laughs) So, yes, I mean, he's the wild card. And also Bob was not without his problems, which we will talk later on. He's not without And honestly, he's not without his crimes. But we'll talk about that in a later episode. Later? Yeah. Okay. I guess we'll just stick to now. Bob is just looking adorable in a tutu and a huge erection coming from that tutu. (laughs) From all to Chiffon, yeah. uh, just just peeking out. So, um, so the replacements' uh, new EP Steak came out in June 1982, and to great reviews again. Robert Criscal also had a huge erection at this time. Uh, he, he gave them an A minus. He's like, great job with your youth and your snottiness. It really shines through. Mm-hmm. And the EP, it sold well. I mean, but it didn't change everything or take them to the next level like maybe Peter Jesperson would have hoped for with that one song. But it definitely gave them that bump of like, these guys know what they're doing. Yeah. Uh, they're definitely established. Well, they hit the ceiling that all punk bands hit at that time, you know, in the in the early 80s, where it's like there's people that are like, this is fucking amazing, and then it just can't get on radio. Sometimes it's their own fucking fault, like when Dead when fucking Jello Biafra refused to release Moon Over Marin as a single, but that's a different conversation for a different episode. That we could talk about it in our series. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is. According to Paul Westerberg, you know, this whole hardcore sound thing that they had with their new EP, it just wasn't their sound. They still haven't found what they're looking for. (laughs) Sorry. God damn it. Get you two out of this room. Get them out. Get them out of here. No, you're not the Nexian Curtis. Um, So, so like, you know, like they, Paul Westerberg and all of them, they all, they all realize like, this is fine, but this. Like, shouldn't define us. Yeah. This hardcore, playing really fast, all this business, uh, it, 
it's something it's very limiting mm-hmm. as far as you know a lot of bands who have branched out from hardcore have said the same thing uh, including the Beastie Boys yeah. like Husker Du uh, so many people said like this it's a really fun 18 month experiment <laughs> and then uh, we really have to evolve yeah. and the replacements they were not in the habit of going along with whatever the crowd was doing at least not for long and so if there's one thing the the whole band banked their career on it's not doing things the way they should be done Goddamn right and they're not a hardcore band they're hardly a punk band uh they're something else they're they're rock and roll they're they're honest but not overly earnest they're loose but brilliant like you said and and they're ready to work out what the replacement sounds was going to be like like paul said keep moving they can hit you with a bottle if you stand still (laughs) and so that's what they're going to do with their next album and that my friends is where we'll pick back up for part three of the replacements thank you so much for taking this ride with us ladies and gentlemen next episode it's hoot nanny it's let it be it's the ones you fucking know and love yes and and uh, I, to add a couple extra books to this series, uh, The Replacements All Over But the Shouting by Jim Walsh. It's an oral history book about The Replacements. I took a few good details from that. I know The Replacements themselves weren't super happy with it because it did shine a lot of really nasty, dark parts of them just being jerks. Yeah. It's nothing horrible, but it's just it just doesn't look well on them. No. Uh, but but it is very interesting. And none of it's a surprise. No. <laughs> uh, and then also uh, I read I was reading this book and it's it's actually pretty fun. Uh, See a little light, the trial and rage uh, and melody by Bob Mould uh, from Husker Du. Uh, his book came out not that long ago and it's it's pretty good. It's actually Bob Mould as an adult is great yeah. to listen to in everything. I I'll, I'll read anything he writes. And then I also checked out Husker Du, the story of the no- noise pop pioneers who launched modern rock by andrew earls that book is really decent as well like i haven't finished it completely yet but i i do plan to um i really like what the like how the writer like approaches things although like it should be edited a little bit but it's good great job great job man great job. i i've never written a book so who am i to judge it's very difficult yes so you know <laughs> so i know it's extraordinarily difficult it's the hardest thing i've ever done in my life and also if you want to check out uh, you know soul asylum stuff uh check out loud fast words uh, soul asylum's collected lyrics by dave perner that just came out a couple years ago i i usually don't care for uh like collected lyrics books, you know, that kind of stuff. Like, here are lyrics. It's like, man, that's a really lazy way to write a book. Mm-hmm. But actually, it, it really works. Dave Perner did the work and he did a good job with that. And um, I also checked out, for no reason, because we didn't even get into it, You Weren't There, A History of Chicago Punk, 1977 and 1984 by Joe Lacerdo and Christina Tillman. Find it on YouTube. And the reason why I'm telling you guys about this is because it was very illuminating. Well, and if you want to check out more Midwest hardcore stuff, definitely check that out. Well, this, I will say the, the one positive thing that came out of that, or the biggest positive thing, is that you finally got into Big Black. I, finally. I got, I got them. I've I been was, trying to get you into Big Black forever. I, w- I, I mean, I listened to them. I was fine with them. And it was all good. But I'm just like, eh, you know, whatever. I'm, I, it just it was the right moment. And it hit me. Yeah, and, and now and I can't. the A-track really fucking loud. But yeah. Yes. <laughs> and also, make sure to check out our, our playlists on Spotify mm-hmm. and YouTube. Also, by the way, Steve Albini took out all of his Big Black and Shellac stuff off of Spotify like today yeah. or like sometime this week because, you know, he's like, they're evil and all that business. And so uh, you just go 
you know, try, buy their stuff then. Yeah. Or check them out on YouTube uh, for sure. Uh, yeah. so, but, start with songs about fucking. Yes, do yeah. that. And uh, and then you can check out our playlist on, on all the on the things. And um, Yeah, and, search uh, No Dogs in Space uh, playlist or search for my own personal profile, uh, Marcus Parks, and you'll find a playlist for every single episode of uh, the show that we've done so far. Uh, so, yeah, please go check that out. Don't tell Steve Albini. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, I mean, I, I've, I love his work. I do. I love his work. Yeah. But, man, I would never want to make an omelet <laughs> and then serve it to him and stand there while he talked about it. <laughs> That's, I believe, one of the levels of hell for like a thousand years. <laughs> he's opinionated. That's what I'm saying. He's opinionated. A bit opinionated. He's usually yeah. right, but he's opinionated. <laughs> That's one of the unfortunate things about Steve Albini. He's almost always right. God damn it. <laughs> uh, yes. And, you know, uh, please check out, you know, our, our merch. We got a couple T-shirts on uh, lastpodcastmerch.com. Mm-hmm. If if you wanna if you wanna get one if it, uh, early birthday present yeah uh, at No Dogs Pod on Instagram if you wanna s- just check out for whatever new new news or or fun stuff that we just post on there and everything and and please 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 do uh, reach out No Dogs in Space at uh, gmail especially mm-hmm. especially if you have a song you wanna share oh absolutely oh No Dogs in Space at gmail we're gonna get to the sh- the song that we're gonna play this week here in a second because I fucking absolutely love it but before that don't forget to uh, check out our Patreon. Oh, uh, yes. If you're not already a member, if you are a member, thank you so much for giving to us. If you're not, go check out patreon.com slash no dogs. Uh, we have weekly playlists that we give out to every single uh, member. Every No matter, like if you start at $3, you get a playlist every single week. Uh, we do a show uh, every week that we just changed to extra play uh, from uh, new arrivals. We used to do it just music news and now we're doing music news plus something fun uh, that we decide to talk about uh, every other week. Um, this week uh, on Extra Play, we talk about MK MKUltra's uh, influence on the music scene, specifically on The Grateful Dead. Yeah. L- yeah. Listen to this. We're talking about The Grateful Dead. <laughs> this never happens. Yeah, yeah. China Cat Sunflower. I like it. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> it's not bad, okay? I, I don't know. Everyone's yeah. always mad when I'm not super excited about a few things. I'm not mad at all. I, I'm also fine with it. Check it out. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so the band that we're going to be playing this week, they're out of Seattle, Washington. They're five-piece. They're called Fruit Juice, and oh, my God, I adore this band. They just released their second full-length record. It's called Mirky versus the Dreamy LLC. It's kind of a cyberpunky concept album. That's how they put it to me. A cyberpunky concept album with an affable yet robotic main character that gets kidnapped and replicated as a robot. <laughs> it's so much fun. It's for fans of like early Brian Eno, like Sparks, definitely. If you're into Sparks, you'll love this band. Uh, and uh, of Montreal as well um, that were really big in like the early 2000s indie scene still putting out music um, but they're fucking great as well but the song that we're going to play today from Fruit Juice is called I Don't Know Uh, I love this song and of course it is on uh, the playlist so thank you very much for listening everybody we shall talk to you next time for the replacements part 3 goodbye goodbye
This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.